Chapter 16. Glastonbury Abbey. When I log on again, it's morning, and I sit in the snug of the Georgian pilgrims, sipping cider, waiting for the return of Ailsa and Lacose. The cider effect might ease the upcoming Silmer withdrawal. The sun is already up and shining above Glastonbury when I down my cider and step out onto the high street. Ailsa logs on, but messages me to say she'll be late. She's been in her room, she says, communing with ghosts. I meet Lacose outside. He's coming from round the corner, his habitual scowl on his face. I wonder where he's been. He nods in greeting. You still want to learn pistols from me? Yes, but where can we shoot here? He points up at the tour. I shouldn't think there'll be many people around there at this time. We walk along Magdalen Street with the ruins of the Abbey to our left. I can't help but peer over the wall, but I see nothing significant. The grey stone walls stand high and ragged. Most of the Abbey ruins have been converted into a pleasant park, where mothers push prams and chat. Lacose and I reach the end of Magdalen Street and turn left past the large nursing home. Another right turn at the end of that street, and before long we've arrived at the bottom of the tor. There's a high wooden fence enclosing an area to our left. A sign on the fence says Chalice Well Gnostic Community. That sounds interesting. A lane leads up between the walls of the Gnostic community to the left and land rising steeply to the right, thickly wooded. Peering up the lane, I see about twenty yards down on the right, nestling into the steep bank, is a small stone building. I say, just going to look and see what that place is. Lacoe shakes his head and just stands watching me while I walk up to the building. A sign outside says White Spring Public Spa and Bathing for Health. Then I return and smile at Lacoe who rubs his mouth. Ready now? We strike up the steep path through the woodland. After about ten minutes climbing, we come out of the woods onto a grassy slope. It rises from us to the top of the tor. Grazing sheep lift their heads to watch us pass and then get back to their food. There's a path up the ridged grass ridge, and we take this until after around ten minutes, we're at the top, standing by the medieval tower. The surrounding countryside spread out for miles around like a coverlet of fields and woods. There's a plaque by the tower. It tells me the tower is dedicated to St. Michael. From my religious law skill, I know churches dedicated to St. Michael are usually placed on earlier pagan sites. In the book of Revelations, St. Michael is God's warrior sent to defeat monsters. I wonder what monsters he found here. While Lacoste checks his gun, I admire the view. I'm on the highest land for miles around. The plaque has a map that helps me understand what I'm looking at. Far to the west I see the Bristol Channel and the hills of Wales. To the southeast is Cadbury Camp, in legend the site of King Arthur's Camelot. Further south and east, but out of sight, is Stonehenge. The Somerset levels lie around us flat and crisscrossed with artificial channels begun by the monks of Glastonbury Abbey to drain the land and make it fit for grazing. Before this was done, Glastonbury was an island, the so-called Isle of Avalon. Pilgrims would have arrived here by boat, coming to visit the sacred Christian sites, the place where Joseph of Arimathea was supposed to have brought the Holy Grail. It seems Glastonbury was sacred long before the Christians came. A dragon is supposed to sleep underneath the tor. There are so many legends associated with Glastonbury, it's hard to disentangle them all and know what's true and what's imagination. But the view is truly magnificent. I glance over to see Lycosis finished examining his pistol. He looks at me as he thumbs brass-jacketed bullets with their soft grey heads into his pistol's magazine. Have you got your gun? I pull my browning from my inventory and waggle it. 
I enjoy the weight of it in my hand far more than a priest should. He says, I'm only teaching you because I earn one skill point in return for every ten skill points you spend. Good to know you're not just being nice. I might think you'd gone soft. He grimaces. How many points do you want to spend? I've thirty skill points left after I learned alchemy from Cowper. I won't get any more skill points until I level, but there's no point sitting with them unused, and I'm not saving them for anything, so I commit all thirty to learning pistols. You ready? I nod. A message appears on my HUD. Christian Lacoze would like to teach you pistols. Do you accept? I select accept, and the lesson begins. I have the strange sensation Lacoze is hypnotizing me. His words are magnetic, and I watch him as he demonstrates loading and aiming. He fires rounds into the air, scaring ravens that flap away from the tower. I follow how he demonstrates, and I loose three or four rounds into the air. Then, the lesson is over. I now have fifty points and pistols. That's not half bad. I should do a bit more damage with my gun next time. Teaching done, and his three skill points earned, Lacoze indicates he's ready to go down. I thought he might be interested in looking at the tower or experiencing some of the atmosphere of the famous Glastonbury tour, but no, I guess he isn't much of a man for atmosphere. I say, do you mind if we go down a different way? He's ahead and doesn't look back. I don't care, whatever you want. We descend on the other side of the tour, along the winding path between the grass furrows. We come to a lane between high hedges and follow it down through the woods. I've come this way because I want to collect ingredients for my potion. Now I've got the skill in the recipes, I want to make a mana potion and a health potion. I dawdle amongst the woods collecting spider webs and the bark of birch trees. I find some fly agaric mushrooms which are technically out of season, but I'm pleased they're there. I also pick hawthorn berries, again far too early in the year, but I suppose the game's set up so ingredients for potions can be found at any time. Despite that, despite that, I can't get juniper berries here because they're mountain plants. Even so, I've obtained most of the ingredients for my potions. I just need to collect some spring water. As we get to the bottom of the lane, I can see Lacoze is bored by me rooting around in the undergrowth. As I stoop to collect some more hawthorn berries and put them in my inventory, he snaps. You finished yet? I grin. You'll thank me for these potions one day. He grunts, yeah, yeah, maybe. But we need to meet Elsa and have a look around the abbey. We wander down the lane until we level with the Spahn bathhouse and I peer in the open door. The building looks very utilitarian now I see it properly, as if it was built by the local town council. It also looks like it isn't used much. There's an attendant standing there who doesn't smile as we approach. The door of the bathhouse is ajar and inside it's dark. There are some candles but they're just glimmering. There's a sign above the door and mist before it says, Glastonbury Baths and Health Spa are fed by the health-giving and holy water of the White Spring. I wonder if the white spring has anything to do with the white powder. I say, excuse me. The guard ignores me. Lacoze seems to see this as a job for him and walks over and pushes the attendant roughly by the shoulder. The attendant stares at where Lacoze's fingers are prodding him and looks up, outraged. You can't be pushing me. Lacoze nods towards me. The man asked you a question. I smile. The white spring. The attendant looks completely uninterested. Lacoze stands ready to prod him again, and finally the man says, Yes, what of it? Is it really white? He seems to find my question ridiculous, but answers with a shrug. It leaves a white residue, calcium. It flows from under the tor, and where the water's been, it leaves a white encrustation. And is it really holy? His face sets. You're asking the wrong man. 
I switch on my clairsentience and see a white glow does emanate from the spring. It must have some magical properties. It'll probably be useful in my potions. It might even add extra power to them. The guard himself gives off no colour at all. Lacoz looks at me. Let's go. We need to meet Elsa. I follow him to the end of the lane and we turn back and head into Glastonbury proper. Ailsa has messaged us to say she'll meet us at the Abbey Ruins. When we get there, she's standing outside. The pale spring sunshine is not warm, but it's better than rain. Ailsa indicates the Abbey entrance. There's a little ticket booth with a sign above it that says the site is owned and maintained by the Ministry of Works on behalf of the Diocese of Wells. It's three pence to get in, she says. It threatens to get in, she says. I think we can stretch to that. The three of us pay our fee to the woman in the booth and enter the abbey grounds. A sign says this is the burial place of King Arthur, and his grave was discovered during the reign of Edward I, and a huge skeleton was found there. The remains have since conveniently disappeared. There's also rumour that the holy sword Excalibur was recovered from the grave, but that too has disappeared. So, Elsa says, there must be some clue to the whereabouts of the red powder in here. Sounds reasonable. We start to look around the ruins at first, but go all three together, then we decide it makes more sense to cover the area faster by splitting up. I switch on my clairsentience and see the glow from the abbey is very pale, as if whatever magic there was once here is now faded. However, it's still a white glow, which is encouraging. We're there around an hour and still haven't found anything, not even the slightest clue. I can see Lacoz is growing bored again. It seems he doesn't have much of an attention span. He lights a cigarette. This is a waste of time. We need something more to go on. Maybe we're missing a previous clue or something, Elsa says. I say, let's just have one more look around. Another ten minutes, maybe? Lacoz doesn't want to agree, but Elsa strokes his arm and that brings him round. They're soon smiling at each other again. We go off on our own. I head towards the area where King Arthur's grave was supposedly found. I'm standing at the spot when I notice a man dressed in a tweed suit with a waistcoat and plus four standing beside me. When he sees me looking, he says, Good morning. Quite a nice day, isn't it? I can tell from his accent he's educated. I see an opportunity. Do you know much about the history of the Abbey? He seems amused by my question. I should say so, though I'm not really supposed to be here. I know Dora at the ticket office and she lets me in. Not supposed to be in here, why? He comes over and offers his hand, which I shake. I'm Frederick Bly Bond. The name means something to me, but I can't place it. I'm about to hit the wiki when, in explanation, he says, I was the archaeological director here from 1908 until 1921. It was me who discovered the dimensions of the abbey, but I was dismissed by the bishop. I look him up and down. He seems inoffensive. Dismissed by the bishop? Why on earth would the bishop dismiss you? Blybond frowns and points at my dog collar. I can see you're a man of the cloth. Churchmen are not traditionally open-minded. I smile. I might be. I'm interested in what you have to say. Blybond scratches his chin and shifts his weight as if wondering how to begin. Then he smiles. I excavated this site with the aid of a psychic. I have visions of shovels moving by psychic power alone, but I know that's not what he means. He goes on, I had a colleague, Captain Elaine, who has a remarkable psychic gift. Captain Elaine contacted the long-dead monks of the abbey and they told us the dimensions of the buildings and what was to be found there. 
I'm listening, but it's as if he expects an argument. He says, it, it is true. I wouldn't pull your leg. Our success is the proof. I was able to sketch out the whole site before he excavated and everything, all my predictions were proved right. But the bishop didn't like you communing with the monks and them being dead and all. Blybond nods. Exactly. He studies me and I watch him back. This is definitely the clue the quest needed. I'm thinking that when he says, I knew you wouldn't believe me. No, I do. Really? He's smiling. I think it's quite interesting. You don't think it's communing with the devil? I shake my head. I'm more open-minded than that. He laughs out loud. Then I would rather have had you as my bishop than that fool. Actually, I say, I wonder if I can ask you something. He appears willing. Go on. I'm here on a little quest of my own. I'm looking for the um, red powder. Do you know anything about it? A strange look crosses Blybond's face. He nods. The red powder Edward Kelly used to transmute lead into gold at the court of Rudolf II in Prague. The Coes mentioned Kelly, to be sure. I ask, Edward Kelly was the associate of Dr. John T. Yes, he nods. But the red powder wouldn't be much use to you without the white powder. Both are used in the production of the elixir. Yes, this is definitely a lead. So, you know something of alchemy? He taps his nose. I know something of many things. But there are some subjects one should not speak about in public. He glances around him at the tops of the ruined walls where crows watch. As if because of the watching birds, he lowers his voice. Kelly found the details of the red powder from an ancient book, the so-called Book of St. Dunstan. Who was St. Dunstan? Dunstan was abbot of Glastonbury in the early years, in the 10th century during the time of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Wessex. He was a local boy who had studied the scriptures from the Irish monks who occupied the ruins of the abbey. The Dark Age Abbey was originally founded by St. Bridget herself, but before the Irish came, the site was a holy place for the British monks and may have indeed been an important place for King Arthur when the Britons were fighting their doomed war against the Anglo-Saxon invaders. He smiles. Everything in Glastonbury gets lost in the mists of time. You know there are prehistoric lake settlements here, villages built on stilts in the lakes that once surrounded this island before the levels were drained. They threw artefacts into the water as sacrifices for their pagan gods. Ailsa and Lacoze arrive and see me talking to Bly Bond. I introduce him. Ailsa says, Charming to meet you. Lacoze merely nods at Bly Bond. Bly Bond studies the newcomers. Are you also engaged in this quest for the red powder? Ailsa nods excitedly, then she whispers to me, I've scanned him. He's green. He's okay. I'd forgotten to do it. Blybond points to me. I've told your friend we should be careful what we say in public. You never know who's listening. Why don't you come to my house? I sense Lacoste stiffen. He's a naturally suspicious person, but I suppose it's a good quality for keeping you alive. I'm not so suspicious of Blybond. He seems a fascinating character, put here as part of the quest, and I'm sure he has lots to tell us. Blybond shrugs apologetically. It's not actually my house. I only rent when I'm down here. I used to have a house full-time in Glastonbury when I was working on the archaeological dig, but it's not worth keeping it up now. It's not far to his house, and we follow him, Ailsa chatting animatedly by his side. I ask the odd question, Blybond is a font of knowledge about the history of Glastonbury. Ailsa is particularly interested when he hints at his psychic conversations with the monks, but he won't go into more detail while out on the street. Lacoze wanders sullenly behind, occasionally casting glances over his shoulders as if he spotted someone following us. I look where he was looking, but see no one. 
Bly Bond opens the door of a perfectly ordinary red brick house and shows us into the parlour and offers to make us a cup of tea. We graciously accept his kind offer. When he's gone, I study the parlour. There are many books on the shelves, mostly they're to do with architecture and archaeology, but there are more esoteric titles. Blybon comes in with tea and seed cake. When we're all seated and have cake in hand, he begins to talk about the red powder. Clearing his throat, he says, First, you must be careful. There are sinister forces in this town, small as it is. Though it began as a sacred site, it has become infected with wickedness, and evil things now pollute the two holy springs. Ailsa asks, which are the two holy springs? Blybon clearly likes teaching. He has the air of a professor. The first is the white spring. It carries calcium. The second is the red spring, which rises within the Chalicewell garden. I interrupt. The place where the Gnostic community is now. Blybond nods. And they are not what they seem. Be careful in any dealings you have with them. In a quiet voice, Lacoste says, they're a guild. I turn. Players? He nods. Evil alignment. Ailsa is chatting with Blybond. So we need both the red and the white powder to make this elixir. Blybond has obviously mentioned the elixir both Crowley and Cowper hinted about. I'm strangely protective of it, as if I wanted to keep it as my secret. Maybe because I have this insane hope. It could bring Miranda back from the dead. Lacoz asks, what exactly is this elixir? I listen carefully. Blybond says, the recipe has been lost for centuries, but it's said both the red and the white powder, when properly combined, will create the elixir of life. There may be other ingredients. Some say the elixir gives immortal life, and others say it can turn anything into gold. Those of a more spiritual bent believe it allows one to commune directly with the gods. I say, does it restore sanity? Bly Bond smiles kindly. Why? Have you lost yours? Elsa giggles. I ignore her and ask Bly Bond. But Dee and Kelly had the recipe. Is that the last time it's documented? Bly Bond spreads out his hands. Kelly is believed to have been a charlatan. Dee was always credible and easily led by those who were more cunning than he was. Even so, it's said Kelly was able to produce gold from lead, and that's why Emperor Rudolf of the Holy Roman Empire let him live there in Golden Lane at Prague Castle after Dee came back to England. So he got the recipe from the book you talked about. Blybond nods. Kelly is said to have had a copy of the ancient book of St. Dunstan. Lacoste says, that's a guy who was abbot in the 10th century. But Kelly lived around 500 years earlier. Surely a book would have rotted by then. Blybond shakes his head. No, books were made of parchment then. Vellum can last for many centuries, so it's possible the book survived from St. Dunstan's time to Kelly's, but I think it's unlikely Kelly actually had it. I believe he just made it up. Blybond takes a delicate mouthful of cake. He's obviously enjoying talking to such enthralled listeners. Even Lacoze seems interested, though he's trying hard not to show it, sitting on the sofa drinking his tea. Cake swallowed. Blybond dabs his mouth with his napkin and continues. But of course, and Dunstan wasn't as pure as he made out, at least originally. He was banished from Glastonbury and thrown into a cesspit in his youth. It's said he mixed with witches and warlocks and learned their secrets. Then, of course, he repented and came back to the church. Lacoze says, so the book of St. Dunstan was possibly a book of witchcraft. Ailsa smiles ruefully, but it doesn't matter now. The book's lost. Lacoze suddenly stands. He steps over to the window with his gun out. I stand too. What is it? Then we're all on our feet, including Bly Bond. There's someone in the garden, Lacoze says. Who? What kind of person? 
Ailsa is at his shoulder. I'm going to look. The Coes goes out of the parlour and opens the front door. I'm right by his heels, but I see nothing. The Coes looks troubled. There was definitely someone there, a guy with a brown mask over his face. But when I went out into the garden, it was gone. I haven't yet told Lacoz or Elsa about my meeting with Mervyn Gerdrock or his offer to join the Brothers of Shadow. I decide to keep it to myself for a little while longer. What Gerdrock said about single players dying fast and needing to join a guild to survive has struck a chord with me. I don't think I'll join them, but I want to keep my options open for Miranda's sake. We step back inside the house. Lacoz isn't impressed with how far we've got, despite the information Blybond told us. He screws his face. We'd better be going. It looks like our trip to Glastonbury was a fool's errand. Maybe we missed something, and there was another clue in London. I've just had an idea, Ailsa says. Oh? Blyborn inclines his head. He is clearly taken with our pretty clairvoyant. You said you excavated by contacting the monks. Blybon nods. I was just thinking, Ailsa says as she smiles winningly. I could be your psychic. Blyborn looks interested. You have that skill, my dear. I think I could contact them for you. The Coes furrows his brow. Who? The monks? What would be the point in that? She strokes his arm. No, silly. I could try to psychically locate the Book of St. Dunstan. It may still be in Glastonbury. Blybond says, I sincerely doubt that, my dear. But let's try. She sits. Blybond sits beside her. Of course. He pats Ailsa on her knee. She flinches slightly as he beams at her, but she smiles back. The Coes rolls his eyes. For the first time, I realise he's jealous of Blybond. That makes me smile. Blybond stands. Let me close the curtains. This is how I used to do it with Captain Elaine. Once all the curtains are closed, Blybond lights a red candle. The match strikes and flares, and the yellow flame flickers above the red wax. The acrid smell of the match lingers in the air. Then he takes a small cone of incense and sets it in a brass dish with Indian designs and using the flame of the candle he sets the incense cone on fire. A thin column of grey aromatic smoke ascends. Blybond sits again. If you try to contact them, my dear, I will ask the questions. A silence descends on the room, and the atmosphere thickens as Ailsa goes into trance. The smoke from the incense is thicker than I would have imagined. It almost looks as if shapes are dancing in it, as if something is attempting to become material. Blybond asks if there's anyone there. In a sing-song man's voice, Ailsa answers, It is I, Brother Antony. What would you know? Blybond is very deferential. He looks at me and mutters, This monk came through all those years ago. He's clearly excited. Greetings, Brother Antony, and God bless you. A growl comes from the corner of the room and I spin round. It's as if something has been angered by the mention of the Christian God. Lacoste scans a corner, but there's nothing there. I try to remind myself that this is all computer code. Nothing is real. No ghosts, no spirits, and definitely no demons. Code or not, the growl makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Blybond goes on, as if the growl never occurred. May I ask you, Brother Antony, what year it is you're speaking to us from? It is the year of our Lord, 970. Once again, something stirs in the corner of the room. The smoke from the incense is thick. I switch on my clairsentience and I see Blybond glows green, as do my other companions. A red glow emanates from the corner behind Lacoz, but I can't see which object is giving it off. It's not moving. Blybond goes on. What do you know of the Book of St. Dunstan? Brother Anthony speaks. 
The cursed book was written before our abbot Dunstan turned back to Christ. He wrote it when he had spent too long with the demons under the tor. What happened to the book? I ask. Ailsa turns to me, her eyes closed, and Brother Anthony speaks through her. The book is destroyed. At first we tried to burn it with the blessing of Dunstan himself, but it would not burn. Then we hacked it with swords, but it turned the blades away, so full was it of wicked magic. Then we threw it into a deep pool outside of the abbey walls. Blybond mutters, but in the later years old pools were drained and the land turned over to agriculture. I say, so the book could have survived, even buried in peat. Behind Lacoe's, a table moves. It's where the red glow is. Lacoe's jumps to his feet and pulls out his gun. There's something there. I can't see it, but there is something there. I say, I could banish it. I have a spell. Blybond says, don't banish anything. We'll lose our connection with Brother Anthony. So I sit again and listen. Brother Anthony talks a little while longer, but his speech is now of his general life in the Abbey and praises to St Dunstan for returning to the Christian fold. There's nothing more about the book of St Dunstan. Incense now fills the room. Ailsa sits back and opens her eyes. I'm going to try a manifestation. It's one of the skills of my profession. A look of intense concentration forms on her face and she stares into the space in front of her and there, in the smoke, little by little, the form of an ancient tome appears. Good God, Blybon says. It looks like a real Dark Ages manuscript. As we watch, the pages turn through an effort of Ailsa's will. I stand so I can look right down at the pages and read them. They're written in Dark Age minuscule, the language is Latin. Once again I bless my career choice as a priest. I have sixty in Latin, and I can read the manuscript. My jubilation turns to disgust when I realise what I'm reading. The beginning of the book is an account of St Dunstan's descent into the underworld below Glastonbury Tor. Foul, slithering things with tentacles lurk there. There are monsters from cold spaces beyond the earth that rape the minds of the men who enter those labyrinths. They control those they bleed dry of their sanity and send them as their servants into the world. The description of the monsters is horrific, but the description of what they made men do, and even worse, what men chose to do in their service, is blasphemous and unspeakable. You observe something especially horrific, minus twenty sanity. Visions of huge coiling snakes and squid-like monstrosities of cosmic proportions loom in my mind. I feel fear rise in me. Amidst the stories of beasts and things Dunstan beheld in this foul underworld are alchemical secrets. One of the secrets is the recipe of the elixir of life. I reach out to touch the manuscript as it hangs there in the air. The vellum feels real in my fingers. I check to see whether I can copy it into my journal, but I can't, and I don't yet have a high enough skill in alchemy to understand it. I fall back into my seat, grasping at my throat. The words I've read and the images they conjured disgust me. I sit in the chair, my head thumping and my hands shaking. The recent sanity loss doesn't help. Lacoste screams beside me, Watch out! A black, square mess of a thing leaps from the corner where it lurked. For all we know, it's been hiding in this house with Bly Bond and him unaware. It's the size of a monkey and covered in bubbling black flesh with eight legs and two sliding apertures in the middle of its belly. Lacoste blazes at it with his gun, injuring it. This is the time for my banishing spell. I select the lesser banishing ritual for the pentagram which I've slotted in my hot bar and spend ten mana points. There's a stink of burning rubber as my glowing pentagram burns it. It's debatable which of us killed the creature. Lakosa's bullets are my spell, but the black, indescribably vile thing lies twitching.
before it vanishes, and my pentagram still glows white in the air, warding off all evil things. That's a handy spell, Ailsa says. A laugh. I have a nervous exhilaration that I survived a thing, but I wonder if my exhilaration is bordering on hysteria. I still feel the tendrils of insanity plucking at my mind. Blybond says, a nice spell, but it won't work on high-level creatures. With the thing dead, a message appears on my HUD. You have found the Book of St Dunstan, 5,000 XP awarded. The XP was unexpected, but welcome. So what now, Ilsa says. The co shakes his head. There's something wrong with this town. We get the red powder, or the white powder, then we leave. I feel ill. Soon I'll need more Soma. <laughs>